0: Lifestyle matters. It's more than money.
1: My name is Liana Watchniak, filling in for Faisal Mm Karmali, here with our regular host, Dave Popowicz. Thanks for having me today, Dave.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. It's always fun to do this with somebody other than Faisal. (laughs) He's not here to defend himself, but I like to pick on him when he's not here. Um, We've got an interesting show today. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about um, aging and technology and the connection there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, personally, there's some connection with my family and now with Faisal's around dementia and Technology is likely to be, and I don't mean uh, biotechnology, right? Pharmaceuticals and whatnot, just technology itself is going to be part of the overall solution. And I think that's general of, general comment for everybody that's aging. Mm-hmm. Um, as that demographic needs more and more resources and help, right? I think technology has got a big role to play in improving the quality of our life and the quality of care that we're going to get as we age. And so we want to talk a little bit about that today.
1: Absolutely. And we have a great guest on to do that. We're also going to talk about something that if you live in Alberta, you have heard a lot about over the last little bit. Mm -hmm. And that will be the federal government's response to the Alberta pension plan idea. Justin Trudeau came out with a statement this week. We're going to talk to a guest about that Mm -hmm. and what sort of the political motivations are behind the entire plan.
0: Yeah. And not just, uh, not just obviously the, the, the liberal government response, but We've also got, I think, some differing opinions amongst Conservatives federally and provincially. So it is, it is an interesting uh, topic and it's a politically charged one for lots of Albertans right now. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the markets this past week. Now you and I shared the, uh, the responsibility of market updates uh, this week and I thank you for your help on that. Um, it is again a challenging market environment, both in the stock and the bond markets. One of the things, uh, the data points that we got this week was around Canadian inflation and where that's at, something we've been struggling with as Canadian consumers for a long time. What are your thoughts on what the the numbers were telling us this week?
1: Well, we saw that number, the headline number, the core number is unexpectedly slightly lower Mm -hmm. than was anticipated. We came down from 4% last month to 3.8% this month. So the inflation is going in the right direction. So the overall thought behind it, the market thought behind it, is that we're not going to see a rate increase, at least in the next meeting, which is next week on the 25th. Um, Unlikely to see a rate increase, still a small percentage chance there that we might have to go a little bit higher, but it looks like things are generally speaking going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I I would say that uh, the data this week uh, would would support that. So I was reporting on um, on consumer spending or what are called the receipts retail retail receipts and it's keep in mind that 70% of our economy maybe a little bit more than that is you and me and all of our viewers and listeners their spending mm-hmm. right so what we do as consumers uh, will impact the gdp numbers and ultimately demand and so on and so forth and there's clear evidence that uh, that people are starting to tighten up the purse strings a little bit. And what I found interesting is because we've had inflation, some of these numbers when we measure it on a price basis, okay, um, they show one thing. But if prices have gone up by five or 10%, okay, that could mask a five or 10% drop in sales. right? Mm-hmm. Because when you match those two numbers, they'd be the same. So when I, when I strip out prices and I look at volumes of retail receipts spending in the most recent month, it's actually down 7 tenths of a percent. And so I I think there is mounting evidence to suggest that the economy is slowing in response to the Bank of Canada's um, interest rate moves. And I think that just adds extra weight to the argument or the position that you just put out that, uh, and will be consensus here, is that the Bank of Canada is quite likely to pause next week. Mm -hmm. Now, at 3.8%, Bank of Canada, Governor, and you've got the U.S. Fed, let's talk about the Fed in a minute. They both said that we're not done, the work isn't done on inflation yet because the target remember is still 2% and both of those banks, um, you know, are still holding fast to to that number. So the messaging is that we're gonna keep our options open, right, so you got, there's two things in there, you got a higher for longer message and you've got the risk that, you know, the overnight rate could continue, could still be pushed higher. But I think that the balance of the evidence suggests that the the risk of the Bank of Canada or the Fed raising rates again is largely done. Doesn't mean we couldn't have another quarter point interest rate increase, but it's largely done. And I think the markets are reflecting that.
1: Yes, it's like we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning sort of mentality that we've been talking about for the last few months. There just doesn't seem to be the appetite in the market anymore for any more of those increases. But we were talking a little bit this week about how sensitive the yeah. markets have yeah. become to those interest rate moves.
0: Yeah, and it's I guess it's not the sensitive that's an interesting point because the sensitivity not as much to do right now with that short-term rate that the banks control, but it's to do with the volatility that we've seen in some of the longer-dated bonds and that's mm-hmm. not controlled by the mm-hmm. by the central banks directly. Right. right certainly through their communication markets will interpret certain things and uh, and price accordingly but you know the the volatility that we've seen well probably since September is really coming from this the, the, the crazy swings the really violent swings that we're seeing particularly in the 10year US treasury bond excuse me and the yield on that bond
1: so let's maybe talk a little bit about that 10-year bond number
0: yeah.
1: why it's important. And uh, what drives that particular pricing?
0: Yeah, well, and that's a that's a it's a complicated answer to that question. Let's see if we can get it to handle it in the time frame that we've got available. You know that there's a pricing. So the bond market's important to, to the stock market because you have to be you have to be compensated for risk, right? And so um, so there's a risk element to answer to your to your question. If I can get a GIC that pays five point five percent or five point seven percent. All right, what do I need if I'm going to take the risk of, the, you know, the stocks bouncing up and down? So you've got that. You've got um, you've got the cost to carry debt, right? So many Canadians and Albertans, Calgarians are faced this year and next year with this notion of rolling over their mortgage. And boy, if you had a mortgage 5 years ago and you're rolling into this market, okay? Things are going to be a lot different. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is a there's there's a an impact on consumer spending. Um, you've got less money to spend from a discretionary perspective. And then in the bond market itself, so the volatility in that 10-year number is interesting in that, as I said, it's not controlled directly by the central bank, but it's bouncing all over the place and moving and it's been moving higher. And part of that uh, is is what they call a term premium. And so because there's uncertainty in the longer dated yields, um, you and I as rational investors, just simply demand more yield because we don't know what the future holds, right? Much like a stock, mm-hmm. I take, I take a, a, I buy a company that I think in the future is going to increase their profitability. So the bond market has those elements of, of risk premium built in as well, and because of the uncertainty, and the U.S. Fed uh, Chair Powell spoke this week and intentionally not providing a lot of clarity around where we are, right? Uh, that uncertainty and that term premium continues to bounce around, and, and, and we're seeing that affect both stock and the bond markets.
1: That's right, and then the interesting part about this is people don't normally think about the bond market driving a reaction right. in the stock market, right. but we're seeing that crossover. Do you want to speak a little bit to why we're seeing those bond and particularly that 10-year bond number, impact the stock market?
0: Well, again, uh, you, you can go back to borrowing costs, or you can go back to, uh, as a rational investor, if I've got two options, where do I put my money? Mm-hmm. Right? And so as, as interest rates go higher and those risk-free uh, interest rates go higher, it makes things, risk assets look less attractive. But think about, think about it, not just, we talked about mortgages, but think about businesses. They've mm-hmm. got to finance their operations as well. And uh, for a lot of years, 15 years, businesses and governments have been able to push out um, uh, you know, uh, financing their operations, whether it's building a new factory or whatever the case may be, over a period of time at very low cost of capital. Any of that stuff that's maturing now, those bonds, and they're refinancing to that market. It makes a lot of those projects less attractive, and perhaps economically unfeasible, right? So there's a ton of uncertainty as to what they're going to do around that. So the bond market is is often a leading indicator. It doesn't always get it right. It didn't get it right last year. We'll see if it's got it right right this year. Um, but but there's it reverberates across all markets. Um, you know, Faisal and I, when we do these things, we chat all the time. About uh, dementia, unfortunately. Um, I, I think it's well known that my mom has been suffering uh, with that affliction for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Faisal is going to be going down or is going down that path with mm-hmm. his, his father at this point. But it, it's, it's a disease that affects a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's more and more research being done about it. There's new drugs coming out. Um, but there's also lots of technology
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that's available, um, and new technology becoming available all the time to help people with dementia and families. With dementia and I think we want to explore that a little bit today. Uh, we've got Alex uh, Mihalides, who's a scientific director and the CEO of AgeWell, uh, a recurring guest of ours. Alex, welcome back to the show.
2: Great, thanks so much for having me.
0: So I think we can jump right in, right? Uh, um, maybe you can give us an update and it's a bit selfish here, Alex, in that you heard the setup, right? My family's been touched by dementia families, sorry, Faisal's family is going to be or is uh, being touched by dementia right now. And so um, i really love to get your input um, as to what new technology is, is out that we should be aware of and uh, and know about.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. And uh, I'm sorry to hear about uh, you and Basil. And uh, unfortunately, I'm in the same situation over the past year. Uh, my mom now is starting to develop early signs of dementia. And so this is becoming even more personal for me than it even has been before. And, um, you know, because of that, you know, I've really really you know been pushing the age network to go further in terms of what we're doing and specifically you know making that leap from all the great research we've been doing for all these years in our research labs to actually getting products out there and so you know we're starting to actually now start to see companies form and products become available so you know for example non-intrusive home health monitoring systems and smart activity sensors uh, for example, by a company called Altum uh, View, and you know this type of technology, you know senses and analyzes human activities and shows trends in people's um, activity levels and and their overall health. And you know research is taking this even one step further and using this type of sensor technology to try to actually predict who may develop dementia over the next six months and. That way we can put interventions in place uh, a lot quicker. Um, we're seeing a lot more work happening now around the use of artificial intelligence that can build systems that can prompt and coach people with dementia through their activities of daily living and then using the artificial intelligence, learn and adapt to the individual person so that it acts more like a, a family caregiver would in that situation. And you know, these are just, just a couple of examples of things that are happening and, you know, we're in a really exciting time now here in Canada. And um, I think over the next couple of years, we're really going to start to see a lot more products actually being developed and made, you know, um, you know, made made available for family caregivers to start to purchase and to use with their loved ones.
1: Do you have a specific focus? Are you looking more for things like early detection, early diagnosis, or are you kind of looking more at things that will help people stay in their homes longer, make it easier for their caregivers? Sort of. Do you have a focus on that front?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The majority of our focus is around how do we keep people in their homes and communities for as long as possible. And um, especially coming out of the pandemic, looking at the notion of, uh, social isolation. You know, how can we use these technologies to ensure that people with dementia remain active members of their communities, of their families, of their care teams? Um, and so that that's, that's really what we've been looking at more and more moving forward. Um, however, you know, as I mentioned with some of the examples before, uh, some of these technologies are also being used not to diagnose dementia, but to raise alerts that, hey, something's going on here. Something is changing. Um, And so time to see your family doctor.
0: Alex, uh, just again, this is going to be a bit of a selfish question, but I just met with my mom's care team uh, this past week. And, um, you know, she is starting to struggle more and more with some of those, you know, daily uh, activities uh, that we refer to. And without going into the gory details, can uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the technologies that, can be used in replace of a caregiver because one of the frustrations we're facing is in dealing with a long-term care facility or even with uh, Alberta Health. You know, resources are limited, right? It's very difficult. There's just not enough people uh, that, that that either are qualified to do it or just simply just not enough people to do it. So I'm really interested in in that area if you can spend a minute there. And again, this is completely selfish given where you know what I'm facing with my mom right now.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's several technologies being developed that uh, help uh, with these common activities of daily living, and particularly around ensuring that they're being completed in a safe uh, manner by, by these individuals. So, for example, uh, you know, we have technologies being developed out of some of our researchers in Ottawa that are looking at uh, developing sensors and systems to reduce potentially risky situations, for example, in the kitchen. Um, and then helping to, you know, take corrective actions, such as reminding them to turn off the stove or to close the fridge door and things like that. And then raising alerts to the family caregivers if these things are not done. Uh, you know, we're looking at a lot of things such as uh, medication reminders or to remind uh, older adults and their caregivers about their appointments. And so, for example, there's a, an app out there called MaxMinder that does these kinds of things. And then a lot of technology is looking at, uh, you know, more of these risky behaviors, such as wandering or uh, potential fall detection or predicting falls before they happen. So um, that's very much, um, you know, what AgeWell is focusing on is, is, you know, how to complete these activities so that, again, they can remain in their own homes for as long as possible and not have to go into a long-term care facility or, or some other kind of institution.
0: So technology, uh, and we can shift gears off dementia. I mean, not everybody's family's touched by this. That's why I said, selfishly, I was curious. But listen, technology, I think, is going to be a broad-based solution to a lot of um, a lot of you know the issues that we will face as our, as we age and as this demographic ages. So perhaps more broadly speaking, Alex, some of the, the you know the key, or even call it cool technologies that that you guys are working on or seeing. That you think will be valuable to the vast majority of Canadians as we age.
2: Yeah, so a lot of work being done, for example, on technologies that ensure people do their exercises and maintain good health. So whether it's stretching exercises or more in-depth rehab that someone may have to go through, um, and you know these technologies are not just your typical thing that prompt you to you know take your ten thousand steps, whatever, but are doing things with virtual coaches and. Automatically monitoring the motion of the person without any type of sensor on them so that we know what exactly they're doing. Um, A lot of other technologies obviously that make use of off the shelf things such as, you know, smartwatches and things like that, that can take that information. And again, apply things like artificial intelligence so that it's making decisions and prompting the person to do things that are more custom to their specific lifestyles. And, you know, that's a really critical thing. You know, if, if my device doesn't fit into my life, uh, doesn't do things within the context that I am uh, I want it to do, then I'm going to ignore it. And so we're spending a lot of time looking at how do we customize these things to to fit and to match how we want the technology to work for us.
0: That makes good sense. Uh, listen, there's, we're going to keep uh, touching base with you and, and tuning in. Obviously, this is important, not just personally, but to many, many Canadians as we age. So I always appreciate when you take a little time for us, Alex. Thanks very much for your time today.
2: Yeah, thanks very much. Great to see you both.
0: All right, that's Alex uh, Mihalidis. He's um, scientific director and the CEO of, uh, of AgeWell and a regular contributing guest of ours. There's a very hot topic right now, um, which has been brewing for a little while. In mm-hmm. fact, probably much longer than most people think. Mm-hmm. And that is this debate around whether or not Alberta should exit the CPP and create its own pension. And we're very fortunate to have uh, Lori Williams, Associate Professor at Mount Royal University with us again today. And Lori, thank you, not just for today, but for uh, for being a regular contributor to, uh, to the More Than Money show. Welcome back.
1: Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Let's start, I think, maybe with some of the context and history beso- behind this plan, because I think you've mentioned before that there is a greater history than just this idea sprung up out of nowhere. So maybe give us a little bit of the background of this idea of Alberta having its own pension plan.
3: So this this traces back, actually, through much of Alberta's history, this whole idea that somehow or another Alberta is not getting a fair deal in, in the Federation, and there are lots of reasons... Um, for saying that, you know, different freight rates for goods traveling, different rates in the country or directions in the country and so forth. But the, the real origin of this, I think, can be traced to the firewall letter that everybody's so familiar with. Um, over 20 years ago, that came out. Uh, and uh, at, at that time, the authors of that letter were already um, associated with Danielle Smith. Some of them were former professors of hers, um, and and currently Rob Anderson, her her key advisor, uh, is ha, has penned things jointly with Barry Cooper, who also is advocating for greater sovereignty for Alberta. So it's it's had it's got deep roots, but in this particular form, we can actually see it uh, emerging quite explicitly more than twenty years ago.
0: There's an active debate on both sides of whether it's a good idea to have uh, you know our own pension or not. Um, I'm not sure I want to focus on that for today. I'm really interested in in the political angle here. So given the history, um, we see the advertising that's taking place right now. Clearly, this is an issue that the Alberta government is going to run with. And we've had a response from uh, from Trudeau's government, the feds. Um, maybe if you could help us understand, Laurie, sort of the positions on both sides here, uh, and, and then we can speak to some of the tensions and what it's going to create.
3: Uh, so Danielle Smith, I think her political motivation for for advocating or pushing this for this idea forward again. First of all, I think it's something she thinks is a good idea, and I've spoken to to conservatives who who do think it's a good idea. Um, as we know, the majority of Albertans don't, and this campaign is meant to to persuade them to, to uh, come on side with them. Um, the on the on the federal government side, on the part of of Justin Trudeau. It's complicated. I mean, part of it is he just gets to speak for all Albertans because if you're talking about taking over half of the pension fund assets for one province, and if Ontario did the same, they'd use up more than is in the pension fund, that raises a lot of concerns across the country. And so Justin Trudeau can position himself as a champion for hardworking Canadians, those who are concerned about their pension, those who are retired or approaching retirement, he can, he can be the champion for all of those those folks by by penning this letter. But it's an, an unusual thing for him to write a letter, a public letter like this. Um, and part of the motivation for that is pretty clearly that he wanted to push Pierre Poiliev into making a clear statement. And now that Pierre Poiliev has done that today instead that he hopes that Albertans will not leave the Canada pension p- plan, uh, I think that seriously undermines the campaign here in Alberta um, and I think a lot more Albertans who might have been wondering about whether this could be a good idea are seeing this could be a huge fight in terms of how much Alberta gets to take with it if it leaves the pension plan. And since all of those rosy projections about paying less and getting more hinge on getting a significant amount out of that pension plan, whether whether it's the 53% or, or 15%. Um, Is a matter of negotiation, but it's quite clear that the rest of the country is not interested in negotiating with Alberta on any sort of favorable terms. They aren't willing to take a hit for the sake of Alberta in this. And, and, and I think a lot of Albertans who think of themselves as both Albertans and Canadians aren't, aren't particularly interested in fighting with other Canadians. And they aren't interested in seeing the premier of Alberta offside of all of the other premiers and the, and the, the federal government. That's actually a good question. Um,
1: Do you have any sense for what the political appetite is in this province in particular for this plan to go ahead?
3: That's a bigger question. So some of this might be because Danielle Smith is uh, playing to the the, the sort of the right wing, sort of more independence oriented um, uh, wing of her party. And and as we saw, that wing of the party can be very effective. There's an AGM coming up. Her leadership could be in question as it was with Jason Kenney. She's got a divided party to try to deal with. And this could be a nod in their direction. And and sort of among them are people who are really uh, anxious that Alberta's interests be advocated against, particularly the federal government to the liberal government uh, of Justin Trudeau right now. And they're really focused on that. And this might placate them to some degree. Um, I don't know if that's a good strategy or not. Um, Jason Kenney had an equalization referendum. It didn't go anywhere. And that wound up being one of the things that he was criticized for. And it could very well, if it doesn't turn out to be a very successful strategy, it could it could turn on on Danielle Smith as well. At this stage, they know they can't win a referendum. She has said that she would not hold a referendum unless it made sense, unless the polls indicated that it was winnable. But she's she's up against some pretty tough criticism right now, both because of the claims that are being made. um, The fact that she's spending over $7 million in an ad, this is taxpayer dollars being spent to try to persuade them to do something that the majority of Albertans don't want to do. And, and she's she's in a, in a very difficult position um, politically because during the campaign she actually, not only did she not campaign on this, she said explicitly that no one would touch Alberta's pensions. Uh, so I think this this could be uh, much more damaging, not just for Danielle Smith, but for the UCP and and potentially for Alberta in in, in the Federation in the long term.
0: You may have addressed this already, Laurie, and just in your last answer, but you know, there's clearly some political risk in pursuing this um, from an Alberta government perspective. Um, you've cited some potential reasons why that may be the case. Um, you know, the end game, I'm, I'm thinking through the end game. At what point uh, maybe does the messaging turn uh, or do you double down on this kind of thing? Just, again, your thoughts. And I know I'm asking you to sort of gaze into your crystal ball here. So we're not holding you accountable for the answer, but I am interested just in your thinking about the end game.
3: So this campaign is clearly meant to push enough Albertans in the direction of supporting uh, uh, an Alberta pension plan to justify a referendum. now, there are a couple of ways this could go. If if those polls don't turn around, if they don't generate the kind of support that the UCP and Daniel Smith are hoping for, then we could be looking at um, them saying, well, look, the Albertans have spoken. Um, they don't want this, so this is not one of the issues we're gonna, going to proceed with. <clears throat> or they could go to the point where they hold a referendum and campaign really hard to try to get folks out to support it uh, if they... If they win the referendum, then they start with those negotiations with the rest of the country. But this is not going to be resolved within this current UCP mandate and, and actually could become an election issue next time around. So I think there are a lot more risks politically. And those those risks actually increased today with Pierre Poiliev standing uh, on the side of, of the Canada pension plan. Um it, uh, this this is not. I, I think it was intended to be an opportunity to fight with Ottawa, and it's worked more effectively because Justin Trudeau actually reacted to it. Uh, some people were calling that a win for Danielle Smith, but but Pierre Poilievre's state, uh, statement today uh, has just made her her job a little bit tougher.
0: A little tougher, yeah. Mm-hmm. Laurie, I think we have to end it there. I want to thank you very much. Uh, you always bring. Clarity to um, to these issues, which could be often very confusing for people. So we appreciate appreciate you joining us.
3: Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it myself.
0: We're joined by Laurie Williams, associate professor at Mount Royal University. You know, often we finish up uh, our show with a, a discussion, a little bit about what what we're hearing from people and what we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? And the pressure is mounting. Like the markets, people are exhausted mm-hmm. right now, Leanna. Right? It's been two years of tough markets. Here we go back into a cycle where there's volatility and uncertainty again. And uh, at this point in the cycle, what always happens is a capitulation trade, right? And I think we're getting close. To I don't know if we're there yet, but we're getting, we're getting close to that. And what that means is people just say, ah, I've had enough, right? Yep. Throw their hands up, sell everything, go to cash or do something like that, right? Capitulate, I just, I can't take it anymore.
1: Yeah, just get out of the markets because they can't stand the volatility. They don't know where to go. And right. I think that's the common theme that at least I'm hearing from people that I'm talking to. I'm sure that yeah. you're, you're hearing a lot of it too. The question is really, where do, you, where do you even start when you're investing in this environment? You have GICs on one side that are promising you, at least on a short term, five, 6%. You have the stock market, which is, all over the place, given yeah. depending not on the day. Not promising anything but pain right now. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing in there that's guaranteed <clears throat> ever. But right now, it's really right. volatile. Yeah. And then you have the bond market, which has been it not behaving as people would have expected it to say five years ago. It yeah. looks very different than it did five years ago. So it's really difficult, I think, right now to for people to even decide where to put. Their money. And when you say capitulation trade, a lot of that is for a lot of people, they say, well, I'll just go to a GAC. Right. Because I can get five, six, between five and six percent, at least in the next couple of years for that. And at least I know it's safe, it's guaranteed, I'm not going to quote unquote lose money in that trade. Right. Now, is that the right thing to do?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question because it looks attractive. We haven't seen these kind of yields on cash for 15 years since the great financial crisis. And um, and so we get into an environment where GICs or cash is offering decent yields and you've got volatility. Um, and we have lots of conversations with people. Now you, you, you've got to remember, um, I think that structure and discipline becomes particularly important here. And this is gonna be hard to hear for people because structure and discipline, um, it, it's it's rare that I would say structure and discipline involves making big bets Mm -hmm. on any one asset class. And so you think about cash as attractive as it is is today, does it form a portion of your portfolio today versus five years ago? Probably. Uh, Should GICs be a part of that? Okay. Depending on
1: who you are. Possibly, yeah. They're a
0: good tool right (laughs) now, right? Mm -hmm. And they haven't been there for 15 years. Um, But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. It's to say that all companies are no good, to say that all corporate bonds and government bonds are no good um, that doesn't make sense right and so what happens is emotionally in these in these environments people tend to make emotional decisions we capitulate we make a mistake and uh, here's some facts for uh, i guess for our listeners you know cash or near cash is if you look historically the best performing asset class about 22% of the time historically and cash has been the best performing class uh, asset class for arguably 18 to 24 months somewhere in there um, so one of the risks that people face, which I don't know that they fully appreciate, if we make a big cash bet, uh, particularly if it's into a locked in product, like a one or a two or a three year GIC or take it out further. The longer you lock that in, okay, um, the reinvestment risk gets higher and higher and higher. And what do you mean by that? Well, let's assume that that we, we took a, a locked in GIC and got five and a half percent. Nothing wrong with that number, right? Five and a half percent in these markets mm-hmm. sounds really good. But at some point, the cycle turns. Inflation comes down, central banks win, if the economy has to go through recession, whatever the case that that might be. And if you're locked in, okay, you can't actually exit that without giving up all that interest, if if you can actually get the money, to get back in on asset classes that might have been absolutely sold off, right? So reinvestment risk is a very big one uh, that people I I don't think fully consider. Asset concentration, okay? So making it an all-in bet on one company, as an example. Hell of a fun ride when things go up,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? But if, you know, if you were all-in on Meta this year, you loved it, but last year, you lost 70% of your money in that year, right? So this this notion of concentration risk, that's a pretty dramatic example, if you will, but it, it holds the same, right? So if you're discipline and strategy says I should be concentrated somewhere for a reason, then I get that. Uh, But for most people in, let's face it in in retirement with a long-term strategy, boy, you are taking a very big risk if you do that. Although it seems like a very safe option, right? With the rates.
1: And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with from a strategic perspective. It's really hard to look Mm -hmm. at something that has gone down in value and say, I want to buy that, right? Because there's the worry that you're going to see that price go down further. Correct. And there's no guarantee. There's no way of telling for most people where the bottom is.
0: Right. Well, you so, won't know that till the end. Exactly. Right? Till after. Exactly. History will tell us that. Not not today.
1: Exactly. So that I think is the issue that a lot of people struggle with. It's very difficult to maintain a structure or a discipline when they ha- when they have the emotion behind it. When they have that feeling right. of but the stock market is volatile it could go down tomorrow Good. so it's hard to actually make a call to say well i'm just going to stay in the stock market right particularly when you're trying to live off of that money in retirement
0: yeah exactly and and this is where we talk about so there's a trading discipline and there's a there's a wealth structure and, and you know we talk a lot about structuring your wealth in a way that protects you so if you've got a, if you've got an income need do what a pension plan does and they call it liability matching Just make sure that you've got assets set aside, which are separate from your risk assets, things like stocks, that you can draw on, Mm -hmm. right? When you need income, so that you don't have to sell in down markets. Now, cash in this environment can be an effective tool there, right? To do that, keep a cash wedge in an account, and then have some bonds later in there. Again, no risk assets, things like stocks, because they're too too volatile. Keep all those risk assets like stocks in in your growth, uh, uh, we call it growth bucket, Yep. which has a longer term horizon, right? But we're also talking a little bit about alternative assets. So if you look at pensions, some of the things that they're doing is, um, is exiting public markets and they're looking at private markets. So private lending, you know, private real estate, private businesses, these kinds of things. Now, it's not that they're without risk because often they're illiquid and so on and so forth. So people have to understand where it fits and how it fits, but further diversifying into some of these other non-traditional asset classes mm-hmm. Things are that are not specifically defined as cash, stocks, and bonds. Right? Alternative to those can often be a good diversifier in the portfolio, bring the risk down, the volatility, mm-hmm. and you know, if if you pick right, then enhance return over that period of time too.
1: Yeah, if you can have part of your portfolio where you've stepped away from the volatility of the public markets, it's definitely something that can enhance your comfort level. Yeah, for sure. for sure. That's for sure with your portfolio. For sure. Over time. Now, the other question that I'm getting is, it, it's interesting because it's the, I'm not getting enough return right. in the stock market, but I don't want to take any more risk. Right. What would you say to that particular question?
0: Yeah, so um, so the really the analysis has to be, is that just a moment in time or is that a long term? Okay, and I think it's good gut check time in general for people to sit back and say, is the amount of volatility I'm seeing in the portfolio uh, acceptable. Um, I th- again, the evidence is clear that over time, the stock market outperforms a bond market, the bond market outperforms the cash market, right? So I, I think you have to go back and ask yourself the question, what am I trying to accomplish? And then you can use the different financial tools to accomplish different things, right? Um, and that's why I said at the, at the beginning of this segment, it's, it's gonna be tough to hear, right? Is there anything wrong with the stock market? Well, you know, stock markets going down are, are not fun. Um, but it is part of the, what we call the systemic risk of being invested. It's part mm-hmm. of the cycle, mm-hmm. right? Now trying to time that cycle, people would argue, um, you know, m- maybe somebody can do that. I, I haven't seen too many people successfully do that. But if you could time the highs and lows, well, you'd be a bazillionaire, right? Nice. But if you don't have the ability to do that, then you're like the rest of us where we have to have the appropriate structure and discipline to go through an entire cycle.
1: Okay, well, we're gonna be talking about this at our next seminar. Right. Tuesday, November 7th at 7pm. Join us at the Carriage House Inn. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register.
3: Thanks for
0: tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.